Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me, because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates, like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Hi everyone and welcome to the Squiggly Careers podcast. I'm Sarah and I'm not joined this week by my usual co-host Helen because this is one of our special guest episodes and I'm delighted to welcome Jennifer Petrolieri. How did I do? Very well. Okay, I've practiced that, everybody listening, about five <laughs> times because I was so worried about getting it wrong. I now feel like that's it. I feel so much more relaxed we can now I've said now. it once and I don't really need to say your surname again. And Jennifer has a book out called Couples That Work, How to Thrive in Love and at Work, which I have to say, having immersed myself in this over the last three or four weeks, the real risk with this podcast is it becomes relationship counselling. So I'm going to try really hard to actually ask Jennifer lots of questions and make sure this is relevant for all of us, not literally for me and my partner, Tom. <laughs> so a little bit of context about Jennifer. So we both went to university in the same place in Nottingham. Amazing. And we were talking about Jennifer now lives actually over in France, just south of Paris, where she's a teacher in SEAD, doing lots of uh, management programmes, women in leadership programmes. And you've actually worked across multiple continents in loads of different places. So as much as this book is about lots of different couples, you've almost experienced this for yourself. Is yeah, that right? absolutely. Yeah, part of a working couple and being all over the place. So yeah, can strongly identify with the people in the research. And so your research is really extensive. So six years, over 100 couples, kind of really in depth. Let's start with what do we mean by a dual career couple? Because I think that's almost, it's not a phrase I think people use every day. So it's kind of good to get the definition and for people listening to think, oh, is that me? Is that not me? Is that everyone? Essentially, it's a couple in which both partners are committed to their careers and committed to each other. So it's essentially most of us yeah. today. <laughs> so if we look at the, in the UK, about two thirds of couples are dual career or working couples. Yeah. So it's really the vast majority of us. And has this changed in terms of as societal expectations have changed around women maybe having kids and wanting to keep working, but also economically having to keep working? I was quite interested to know... Do you think this is a new phenomenon or do you think actually it's always been there but maybe not been researched before? A little bit of both. Okay. So if you look at the statistics, we can see since really the 1970s, the number of working couples has been growing very rapidly across right. the world, not just in the UK. Yeah. And as you say, partly this is economics, partly it's an equality drive, partly it's people are placing more meaning from their work, both men and women. Yeah. But we really are the first generation en masse to be working couples. Okay. So it is a relatively new phenomenon, kind of the most of us are in this situation. Yeah. And what made you choose to research it as an area? Was there, was it because of personal experience? Was it because you could just spot a trend? A little bit of both. I'm sure like many of your listeners, you know, I was wrestling with the challenges many of us wrestle with. I think at the time I started, you know, my children were younger, you know, two small children. We're both trying (laughs) to grow our careers. 
And even though we loved our work and we loved each other, it was challenging at times. Yep, yep, yep. Been and that. I think, <laughs> yeah. And as every good academic does, you know, I thought, like, what's the solution to this? And went to the library and just found nothing. Mm, so real so gap. Real gap. And there's research on, you know, work-life balance, who does the washing up, that sort of stuff. Yeah. Which wasn't really that helpful when we're thinking about managing two careers. And then there are these stories of these power couples who have everything sorted. I'm like, yeah. I am never going to be like that. No. <laughs> and so I looked and the more I looked, the more I realised there's just nothing out there on this. So if no one's done that research, that's what I'm going to do. And so you talk about three transitions that typically couples make during their kind of lifetime. And I thought we'll spend a bit of time exploring each of them. And then at the end, talk about this thing called couples contracting in terms of quite a practical I think, way of thinking through, regardless what transition you're at, how you can work together as a couple. Yeah. Because there's a really nice statement, I think, actually, in one of the articles that you'd written in Harvard Business Review, which is, dual career couples are better off being relentlessly curious, communicative and proactive in making choices about combining their lives and I thought, oh, brilliant, that's a great summary. And actually what all of our listeners want to do is be probably nodding and going, right, how? How, yeah. do, how do I do that? Yes, please. I'll tell you. <laughs> how do I do that? So let's talk about transition one. And this is almost like the first big transition, if I've understood it right, that you make as a couple. So talk to us a bit about what does that first transition typically look like? Yeah. So, I mean, if you think back to the early days of your relationship, right, they were great, right? Yeah. My, and, mine, for me, that is quite a long time ago. I've been with my partner 20 years. Yeah, me too, me yeah. too. <laughs> but if you think about it, what happens in those early days is essentially you're leading parallel lives, right? Even if you think you're yeah. committed to each other, your career's still going on, you've got the same sets of friends, and you've layered on this wonderful relationship. And it's great. And it never lasts. Mm. Because you always, at some point, hit an event that creates a hard choice. So maybe you get offered a job on the other side of the country. Yeah. What do you do, right? Do they follow? Do you go your separate ways? Do you try and commute? End of parallel living. Maybe you have your first child. For anyone who's had children, that is the end of parallel lives as yes. we know it. Yeah, you yeah. Know, we have to really look at how we combine things. Maybe you're a couple who gets together later in life, right? And yeah. then it's like, how do we blend families from previous relationships? Yeah, really tough. Really, all of these are great moments, but they create these tough choices. And it's the first time as a couple we really need to sit down and figure out, okay, how are we going to make this work? And by it, I mean, how are we going to structure our lives so we can both pursue our careers and have a decent relationship? Yeah. And so this is really the first transition from these parallel tracks to really building a life together. And I think I was reading this and thinking, probably the trap that I fell into, and I'd be really interested to see, is this, I hope this is not just me, was denial. I think oh, yeah. the kind of parallel lives thing, I probably hadn't quite appreciated that that was the way that your relationship works. I had my little boy two and a half years ago, so I've got a little oh, toddler. congratulations. Thank you. And then for a bit, as we were first, you know, when you're going back to work and you're trying yeah. to make that work, I just thought, well, I want to go back to what I was doing previously because I, yeah. I really enjoyed that. So, oh, we'll just keep going Carry as on. we were. Yeah. Personally, as I was reading, your, I was like, oh, maybe that's why I found it so hard initially because I was trying to do things in exactly the same way. And I think part of it is that, you know, in the UK and across a lot of the world, the value of independence is like huge, right? right Stand okay, on your yeah. own two, two yeah. feet, don't depend on anyone. That's ridiculous in a couple, right? If we have yeah. independent lives, we're not really a couple. And I think this first transition is all about moving away from that denial that we're just on yeah. these parallel tracks <laughs> and we happen to be in love to really looking at how can we craft an interdependent life where we truly rely on each other in a way that's helpful, not in a way that's bad or doesn't mean we can't stand on our own feet. 
And you talk about some of the traps as well that people typically yeah. fall into. And I, I think I was like literally ticking them off. I was like, oh, yeah, I did that. And one of the traps you talk about is almost being too focused on the practical. Because I think you do get very like, OK, oh, so, so natural spreadsheets, what does that look like? And as I was reading this, I had just sent a spreadsheet to my partner <laughs> with nursery drop-offs and pickups, And I was like, oh, no. And it's not that you're saying those things are wrong, but I think sometimes perhaps people get so focused on just the ins and out of maybe day-to-day living that you're maybe not having some of the bigger conversations. Is yeah. that the point? Yeah, and I think time and time again, I'd talk to couples and they would say, you know, we've Google synced our calendars, we've got the yes. Excel spreadsheet, we've <laughs> automated our shopping lists, and it's still not working. And it's because, of course, those practicalities matter, but you can do all that you want and it's still not going to work. Because what really makes it work, especially where you are now, right, in this first transition, is that you have that conversation around the principles of your relationship, right? What really matters to us? What are we trying to pursue? And what are the yardsticks by which we're going to measure our life, right? Whether that's a career goal, whether that's, you know, having time to pursue something outside, whether that's the kind of couple we want to be. And unless you have those conversations, it's impossible to fix Mm -hmm. the practicalities because there's no logic to it, right? You're just trying to cope as opposed to thinking, okay, what do we really want to do and pursue and what can we afford to let go of? Because none of us can do everything. No, one of the things that I really liked is actually, so at the end of each of the transitions in your book, you do a lovely kind of summary chapter in terms of the key questions, but also some of the key things that you found. And there's a specific point I pulled out that just really uh, kind of resonated with me. And I don't think that we talk about very much at work, which was around kindness. And you talk about it being such an important predictor of relationship satisfaction And you describe how when we get really defensive and kind of defensiveness, you get into a real vicious cycle of kind of negativity. And also, I think the point is, we've all been there. We all do that at some point. But if you get into kindness and almost assuming the best positive intent, you get into a virtuous cycle of actually positivity. And I thought that was such a nice way for people to think about things. Because I think actually... The only reason probably I've succeeded in the last couple of years is because of the kindness thing. Yeah. And I think it's really interesting, like, what do we mean by kindness? Yeah. Because when we think about kindness, we often think about doing something kind to the other person, you know, buying them a little gift or letting Mm. them sleep in, which is great. Yes. But kindness. It is great to be clear if you're listening. Yeah, if you're listening, especially (laughs) if my husband's listening. I like that. Um, But the really important kindness is thinking kindly of your partner, right? So when they come home late from work and they've forgotten to pick up the takeaway, yeah. what is your assumption? Is your assumption set that they're a layabout and they don't care? Or is your assumption, actually, they've probably had a really hard day at work? And it's that level of kindness which really makes the difference in couples. And it's interesting because at the start of our relationships, we are super kind, right? Whatever they do, (laughs) they leave their pants in the corner. Oh, they're still wonderful. (laughs) And somehow that goes away. You know, the little gifts, they're lovely, but they're not enough. It's really is our basic assumption that our that our partner is a loving, kind, decent human being who is trying to do the best for us. And if that is correct and we act in that way, couples can get through pretty much anything. Yeah. And you talk about the key question for transition one is how can we make this work? And I think by how we can make this work, it's both at a the practical level, so that's still important. Yeah, because you have to course. figure those things out. But to me, it felt like there was also quite a big, an emotional level of this is not about how we can make it work with more spreadsheets. It was 
emotionally, the yeah. things that are important to us, how we can make this work. And it's how are we really going to invest in each other and support in each, each other without, you know, the balance of power kind of getting off. So I think the conversations couples need to be having at this time is, first of all, really understanding deeply what each other want, right? What yeah. matters to them and what matters to them as a couple together. Questions like career prioritization, right? How are we going to look at the investment we each put in our career and how's that going to change over time? It's really important thinking about how we map our careers out over time and whether there's a period where yours need to take priority a little bit and then we swap. All these questions are really fundamental. And then, of course, we layer the practicalities on top of that later. And did you see with the couples in this first transition that you talked to, was there a model that seemed to work better or was it actually just more important that people were doing the right thing for them? I mean, my analysis went in two phases. And as any research will tell you, you know, the thing their data tells you first is the thing you want to hear is not the real answer. (laughs) So when I first analysed it, I found that the couples who did best were couples who, and when I say best, I mean they were happiest in their career and relationship, not they became CEO or whatever, were the couples who really place joint emphasis on their careers. And I was like, yes, that's my husband and I model tip. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> and then, of course, I was like, mm, I'm a little bit suspicious. So I looked at the other models. And essentially what I found is anything can work really well. Okay. The key is whether it's been very explicitly negotiated and agreed. And the reason that joint priority seems to work better is it's quite hard to maintain. And so it forces us to have those explicit conversations. Oh, interesting. So it's kind of that way around versus that yes. that's the best model. So if you're exactly. going to do that model, you've had to have the conversation. Yeah. And I find that really hopeful because I think like you and all working couples, we are fed up with people telling us, do this, like you must follow this. And I think what this really showed is actually you can make anything work as long as you're really explicit and you negotiate those principles up front. Yeah, and I think for some of us, uh, certainly in my case, that's the unfamiliar and the unknown. Because mm. if you're maybe a couple that are just very good at having those kind of conversations, perhaps it becomes a, comes more naturally, but you're probably not needed to have them. And exactly. so certainly with me and my partner, that's probably not really the sorts of conversations we've had. And so suddenly you are having to kind of make some proactive decisions around going oh like how are we going to make this work together what does this mean actually for me and my partner we had a really specific example where he'd been in the same company for 10 years and that had been useful that he'd been there actually we were having our little boy because you know people knew him and they were really flexible with him and then he was like right I think now's the time to move on yeah and part of his new role now means that he travels a lot more yeah down, down to kind of the south of the UK and so suddenly there was like a real impact on of course, on your both career, practically yeah. and emotionally, because actually until this point, he's always been the one sort of supporting me and kind of so he could always work around my career yeah. so I could sort of put it first. And I remember actually being quite nervous about it and actually just thinking, oh, that, this is like a new calibration of yeah. things. But I think the thing that reassured me was we have had this attitude over the last couple of years of like, we're in it together. Almost the extent of like against our kid to that extent. (laughs) But I think it's so important. I think where couples fall down is where they get into extreme trade-offs. I give you X, you give me Y. This is the road to hell. It's much better Uh. to form this view of we're in it together. And so what can your husband's new job give to you jointly together. And I also think it's really normal that most couples start to develop the habit of these conversations in the first transition. In the moment, yeah. Yeah. (laughs) And that's not a bad thing. (laughs) What's a bad thing is if they don't. And this is where couples start to go on the rocks, is if they negotiate their way through that first transition purely on the practicalities, Mm -hmm. then they're really setting themselves up for some tough times ahead.
And so as you move into the second transition, so this is more about almost reinvention, both individually and collectively. And the key question here starts to become, so what do we really want? Yeah. There's a lot of stuff in here about identity that I found uh, really interesting. So what sort of triggers the second transition? If the first one is almost the first time that your lives go from being kind of separate to connected yeah. and you're in that connection now, yeah. what's the second trigger? The second trigger is really about career stage. So if you think back to your career in your 20s and 30s, Whatever we think, it's always a mix of what we want plus social expectations. Yeah, you talk about uh, what we should do yeah. in the book, which I really yeah. liked. I was like, yeah, sort of should do these things. So yeah, you feel like you should. And so you've, we've spent really the first two decades of our career striving, 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 building our career, building a relationship, some of us building a family as well. And it's a mix of the things we really want to do. And also, you know, our parents not just in one direction and all our peers are applying to this industry and it seems quite cool. So I live in France now and smart kids become engineers, whether right. they want to become engineers or not, you know, just, and all cultures right. have this. And in many ways, that's OK, right? All these people love us. They want to push us in the right direction. But what happens for everyone at mid-career is they've done all that striving and they take a step back and think, is this really my path mm -hmm. and often the answer is no and it's not necessarily that they want a radical shift like you know I'm going to set up a ski chalet in the mountains but although that would be nice yeah <laughs> but many people at that stage really just think okay this is a time to really think through my direction in life and really what what we want from life and it's also a time and I'm this stage now sort of mid-40s where you feel like if I'm going to make a change, it's now. You know, I still have a bunch of time left, but I'm not getting any younger. Yeah. And it feels just more urgent to really grab the bull by the horns and say, OK, what really is the direction I want to go in? And I think, you know, it relates to your work on careers, these real turning points where I feel like I need some blue sky thinking, really think what are my strengths and what is the direction I want to go on? And yeah. it's tough for couples if both of you are questioning this at the same time. Well, this is where you start to, you, you mentioned a quote, a young quote in the book where he, he says, we let go of our ought to be self, become the person we are meant to be and follow a path that feels truly ours. Yeah. So I think this involves quite a lot of deep thinking Hugely. and people having more like existential type crises. I hear lots of people who maybe I coach or we work with who have got to a point where they're suddenly going, oh, is this it? Is Absolutely. this me now? And actually, that's a really scary question to be asking yourself. And the likelihood is, as a couple, you're not going to be off a million miles off asking those questions at the same time. Yeah, and it's really threatening in a couple because what often happens is if if you see your partner with these questions, it's really easy to interpret them as a problem about you in the relationship. Right. If they're questioning their career, their direction, what do they really want, is that because I've done well. something wrong. Is yeah. that our relationship? And so this is a time that can be very tense in couples when both are wrestling with these questions. And so with the couples that you were talking to over a long period of time, what tends to happen in terms of what are some of the traps that people fall into or some of the things that you can naturally look out for if you're listening to this and thinking, yeah. oh, this might be me soon or yeah. oh, I feel this way now? Yeah, I think there's two things. One comes back to your sense of denial, right? Mm -hmm. So what happens sometimes, and for many of us, I think, is when we get to this stage, life is going OK, right? Yeah, yeah. You know, our careers may be going OK. We've got a decent relationship. Maybe we have kids. They're doing well. And there can be a sense of, I, don't, I shouldn't rock the boat. And so I 
push, I say, okay, I'm going to just ignore those questions and, you know, bottle them up. But of course, we all know what happens when we bottle those questions up. Eventually, they come back to bite. So that's one trap, this idea of I'm just going to kind of ignore them and hope they go away. Head in the sand moments. Yeah. Yeah. And I think the other is, and this is really about couples, is the way we support each other needs to drastically shift at this stage. So if we think in our early days, and actually, if we think about what do we think of as a good supportive relationship? We tend to think of good old tea and sympathy, right? Yeah. My job is to plump up the self-esteem <laughs> of my partner and make them feel great. And and it's wonderful, right? Who doesn't like that? But it's exactly what we don't need in these moments. And you know through your work that when we're in these transition periods, we cannot stay in the comfort zone. No. The only way to get through them is to get out, right, and explore and experiment and reflect and do this work that's quite risky emotionally and potentially practically, right? We might be yeah. making a big career transition. And the problem when we hold our partners really close and kind of mollycoddle them is it dampens down that right. exploration. Yeah. And so what I find, the couples who do really well in this transition really flick their model of support from this very cosy tea and sympathy model to a model that I describe in the book of a secure base. Now, what does that mean? It's a psychological term that essentially means, yes, there's that comfort, but essentially, instead of that loving cuddle, it's a loving kick in the ass, if I can put it that way. That's a great so way it's really it. a, I hear you're wrestling with these questions, so get out there and do something about them. Okay. Now, it's really counterintuitive, right? Because if we're feeling a bit wobbly in our couple, our tendency is to hold our partner close. But in fact, this is the opposite. It's like, okay, I need to push you away from the relationship in a loving way yeah. to let you explore and really find the answers to those questions and then we'll figure it out together. I also think one of the things that struck me was you described some of the couples in your book around people feeling like they were on like the success train mm. and I, I suspect that's quite a common way like you say you have been quite successful and you're progressing and you're thinking oh I could keep going and so if you're somebody who is contemplating getting off maybe like the success train you thought you should have yeah that's actually an incredibly difficult thing to think about really hard. And you probably need your partner to give, to you, give the you the permi- push. permission. Yeah. I was like, you know, really sometimes you need about the permission. permission. I think it is. And I think that word's really important in our partnerships because I think very often, particularly when we get to that midlife stage, and we've got a lot of responsibilities, right? We might have children, we might have elder care, we might be managing a team. We can feel we're carrying the world on our shoulder. And to have your partner give yourself permission to say, you know, it's okay to think outside the box to really explore the direction you want to go in yeah. is so important. My partner is an accountant and I feel like I've kind of done this second transition a bit sooner because all of my career I've worked in really big companies, yeah. like big FTSE 100 companies. And then as a heart, some were still quite young, so probably only in the last six to nine months. Yeah, I have done that thing of thinking... Oh, interesting. I think I now feel confident enough to run my own business, which is a completely different identity to like the of big course. corporate world where I was, you know, you're doing really well, you're progressing. Yeah. And, you know, you feel like you're the career high flyer in, mm-hmm. in some way, shape or form. And so I remember talking to Tom about it and saying, oh, you know, I think I'm going to give running my own business a go. And naturally, as an accountant, you can see the slightly more risk of a... Yeah, the, the pound signs going yeah, around the Bibles. Is this really the right time, Sarah? But actually... Yeah. And I suspect it, he had to work quite hard to not worry about all the kind of the risks and the how is that going to impact practical bits, relationships. And he just was like, oh, if you feel like you're ready yeah. and that's what you want to do and gave me a lot of permission yeah. to go, well, yeah, you should, if that's what you want to do, 
you should make that happen. And I didn't need lots from him, but I think I did need him to not ask me lots of very practical questions, you know, like... And that's what's so important. <laughs> because I think sometimes... I'm already thinking about those and panicking anyway. Yeah, I think sometimes we think about this role of giving our partner a loving kick up the ass, but it's not a nagging role. It's not a... And no. did you do this? And did you talk to this person? No, 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 no. It's really a kind of free-range role. And it's also great that you recognise his role in your transition. Because I think it links a little bit to the kindness question, but so many partners ignore how instrumental Uh, their partner was. And I think it's so helpful, and I hope you tell him it too, (laughs) that that is like open in the couple because um, I think that's where resentment can come into the couple, right? Where he's really, in some way, has taken a risk for you. And it's so important that you can acknowledge that to him and that that is acknowledged in the couple. Yeah, and I think it's... So I hope he's listening. Yeah, do you know what he doesn't? (laughs) Like genuinely, he doesn't. Well, this episode, and just I'm always like, this should be the, the one episode, yeah. <laughs> and I was like, oh, maybe I said to him, maybe you should come and like listen to this and be part of it. And he was like, oh no, I don't want to be in the air, etc. So that was a step too far for him. And so I think then, as you're getting into the third transition, this is very kind of different again. Hmm. So you talk about it's kind of titled loss and opportunity. And the key question here is, who are we now? So kind of a reminder, the transition one was, how can we make this work? Transition two is, what do we really want? The kind of the points around identity, which I think were really interesting. And then this third is almost like, who are we? So what's happening here and when are typically people in this stage? Yeah, so this is really linked to that phase of life before retirement and often quite a long time before retirement. But when our social roles are changing, so if we've had children, they're flying the nest. I mean, you were just talking about your corporate career. You know, if we've had a corporate career, we're no longer the bright young thing, right? We've been climbing, 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 and suddenly we're plateauing out. And actually, there's one guy I was talking to and he said, I knew I was in this transition when um, I went for promotion and the guy who was up against me was my protege and he was 10 years younger. Mm, Yeah. So it's those moments where really the seas are turning. There can be a massive sense of loss with that, right? I'm no longer the hands-on parent. Mm -hmm. I'm no longer the bright young thing, the bright young star in the organization. Who am I? Who am I now? And it's also a question in our couples because for many couples, children are the project that bind them together. Yeah. And when the children leave, I had so many couples said to me, you know, we looked at each other and just thought like, who are you? And it's a very natural turning point. At the same time, it's a very exciting time because for the first time in decades, couples have freedom, yeah. right? Freedom of time, hopefully a bit of financial freedom if they've been prudent with their money. You know, they've mm. maybe paid off mortgages or been saving enough. And they've still got a while left in their careers. You know, gone are the days yeah, where we're yeah, retiring. Yeah. That's what we talk 60. about, yeah. That you're never going to retire, probably. Yeah. Not in the same way that our parents did, certainly. Yeah, exactly. And so, really, this is the first generation of people reaching this transition who have, firstly, 10, 15, 20 years of their career left. They're probably pretty healthy. They have freedom. Because people are having children later, they're not going to encounter grandparenting duties anytime soon. <laughs> And also, as you write about and talk about, the structure of careers are changing. So if we look back 20 years ago, at that transition, people would be in the same company until retirement and would really be winding down. That's no longer the case anymore. There's all sorts of options. Portfolio careers, entrepreneurship, freelancing, there's all sorts of things that just were not available to previous generations. And do you think people are also potentially starting careers there? Because I was thinking about my mum 
who, again, the freedom probably is the right word of like having had three kids and the majority of her time invested in us and kind of supporting us. And actually what I've really noticed over the last five years or so is that she's almost like starting her own career now. So she's become like a netball coach and she now coaches other people to do coaching. And there's this whole new identity there's a whole independent of us and is completely separate and actually almost my dad is changing how he's working so he used to work phenomenally long hours he's working a bit less and my mum is actually working more now maybe that's the way they're going to make that work but you know oh it's really interesting to watch them kind of navigate how they're using their time yeah and it's a really interesting transition and I think the trick for couples is how do you grab that opportunity while dealing with the loss because it is also a time you know it's recognized it's a huge loss of some of these roles and some of these really valued identities and also our relationships are really shifting at this time so it's really about balancing these two sides off and do you see with the people that you were talking to who are in the third transition have they always done transitions one and two really well? And that means that then they're more likely so to be three? It depends. I mean, and obviously there are some couples who are new couples, right? Yeah, who, that's true. You know, so yeah. it really depends. So what tends to happen is if couples get to transition three and haven't done number one and number two well, transition three is very, very mm. difficult because there's a lot of unfinished business from the first two transitions. And this tends to be a time when the resentment comes up. So I'm sure this hasn't happened in your parents, but often if one partner's taken their career at a slower pace because of the kids, it can be like, well, I've sacrificed for all these years. And and so it can be a very tense time. And actually, when we look at the divorce statistics, it's a horrible term, but we see this rise of grey divorce. Right. And in the last decade, there's been a huge rise of divorce at this kind of mid to late 50s. Just as you're going through that. Just as you're going through that transition. And I think it's due to two things. One is, you know, that loss is there. I also look ahead and see, you know, I've got enough life to really build a new life with someone else. And so unfortunately, it is a time when there is a peak in in couples going their separate ways. Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear and fine leather goods, all at 50 to 80 percent less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up Quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365 day returns on your next order. That's Quince.com slash upgrade. Since 2013, Bombas has donated over 100 million socks, underwear, and T-shirts to those facing homelessness. If we counted those on air, this ad would last over 1,157 days. But if we counted the time it takes to make a donation possible, it would take just a few clicks. Because every time you make a purchase, Bombas donates an item to someone who needs it. Go to bombas.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. That's bombas.com slash ACAST, code ACAST. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. (laughs) 
And so for the people who you interviewed, where you do see they are kind of going through this well, and if people are listening thinking, oh, this is sort of me or I'm maybe approaching this moment, what sort of things should they be thinking about? Yeah, so the couples who did really well in this transition did two things. And one is which is really sweet, so I'll save that to the end. (laughs) The first thing was... They didn't ignore the losses. They, You know, they talked about them and really acknowledged them. But then they moved on to the opportunities and really spent time broadening their horizons. So if we think in our 20s, 30s, 40s and really early 50s, we are focused on careers, our relationship, our family, if we have one. Then you fall into bed at the end of the day. Yeah, and you go, <laughs> wake up the next day. If you've made day, it work, you're fine. Uh, yeah, and if you've made it work, you're <laughs> fine. And you say, you know, one day I will do something right, in the yeah. community. And this is a time when we can really broaden our horizons. So the couples that do well kind of really broaden their horizons past those three things and look at community, volunteering, legacy, you know, really are broadening out. The second thing I found, which is so sweet, is that couples who did well replaced the children with joint projects I that know, were just it was about just the them. passions, the yeah. find a shared passion. It was so nice. I know. <laughs> and the couples were just adorable, the things they were doing. <laughs> so some of them were coming back to activities they'd done, you know, yeah. pre-kids days. Some of them were exploring new things and some of them were actually working together, which oh. was really interesting. Now, a few, not many, were whole hog, everything together. But many had little side projects either entrepreneurial or voluntary or something on the side. And I think this is really interesting because as work becomes a real central piece of who we are, and of course our partner is a central piece of who we are as well, there's this natural coming together at the end of our careers, which is such a lovely way to almost express our love, right? In that we're going to combine our love for each other with our love for work and do something together in this last period. Now, it's not for all couples, But I found that a really interesting trend. And do you think, and maybe this is something you didn't necessarily address in your research, just interested to see what your kind of point of view would be. When I read that point around shared passions, I thought, oh, I'd really like to have that now. And I I don't. And to your point, the reason I probably don't is I go, if I can make the work and the family thing and the relationship, I feel like you kind of probably don't have the space to find that. But I was thinking... But I suspect that would be quite good for our relationship. Yes. And we did used to have it. Yeah. So and before I think, Transition 1, I, we had it. And now course. we don't. And I was thinking, maybe that is still a good aspiration to have. Maybe it's just because clearly I would quite like to do it. But you think... No, I think, I think you, learn you are that? exactly right. And it's such an interesting point. And I found that actually couples who went through Transition 3 the best were couples who had these shared passions all along. Right. That said, there is a reality <laughs> yeah. in that I've been there in the baby toddler years yeah. where it is a bit in the trenches. And I think we also need to give ourselves permission to say, you know what, if all we can do for a couple of years is get through the day and collapse, that's actually OK. Yeah. Yeah. That's OK. I think it's can you pick that stuff back up before the kids get to 17? Yeah, yeah. You know what I mean? Yeah, I prefer not to wait that long. (laughs) Yeah. But I think, so if where I am, we have a nine and an 11-year-old, you know, and we've, in the last few years, started to pick back up some of those shared passions. And it's been great. And I'm glad we're doing it now and not waiting. Yeah. But there is just a reality. And I think one of the things, especially for working parents, is it's very demanding. And I think sometimes we need to give ourselves a break. If we don't go on a date night every week with perfect makeup, that's okay. Yeah, and I think I could, I really enjoyed reading all the different stories, you know, the yeah. different people that you interview because you sort of share their stories. And you could see that some of them, there was no like perfect couple, which oh, I know, you know, there was no one who you were like, oh, well, they're just navigating all of this beautifully. Actually, everyone found it hard mm. at different times. Almost the difference seemed to be 
were they prepared to acknowledge that it was hard yes. and then talk about it together? I was like fearful of a few people where you're like, oh no, they're re- they are actually genuinely yeah. really struggling. And you could completely see how it happens. I think it's a really natural thing that somebody, they're too fearful to share with the other person because yeah. they think, oh, what will they think of me? Or everything just gets too overwhelming and you just don't get to that point. Yeah. But it seemed to be the couples where they were acknowledging that it was hard, being like, yeah, yeah. It's really hard right now. And then going, oh, let's chat about it. But the kind of the solutions didn't always fit in the practical. I think that was another yes. thing for me, just yeah. and this being is more why, than just the practical things. This is why I always think of it is it's really about developing the habit of those conversations. It's not just thinking, oh, we're in a tough spot. We really ought to talk about that stuff. What was it we were supposed to talk about? Okay, it's yeah. really developing the habit that this is part of the fabric of your relationship, that you talk about your direction, what you want out of life, where you're going. And you share the things that are irking you um, rather than bottling them up until you're facing this big transition or this hard challenge. And then you're having to unpack all these layers at the same time. Yeah, and that's you summarise, particularly in the Harvard Business Review article I was reading, there's a really good summary of something that you call couple contracting, which I think is kind of linked to lots of things that we've talked about, which is across all three stages, it's really helpful for couples to discuss three specific areas, which are values, boundaries and fear. So we talk a lot about values at Amazing If and through kind of squiggly careers around values being the things that motivate and drive you Mm -hmm. and how important it is to kind of understand the values of the people around you and is that sort of what you mean in terms of in a couple because if it is Helen is going to be so smug because she shares her values with her husband (laughs) and she once talked about that and she often says oh you know me and my husband actually talk really openly about her values and I'm always like oh you know I'm not sure that's something my partner would do but is that essentially what we're talking about here? Yes and I think it's really important to define what do we mean by values Yeah, because I think people think like I value family it's like, oh yeah, what does that really mean? Yeah. So I think it's about getting, and perhaps a more accessible question for your husband, who yeah. doesn't like values, <laughs> is what really matters to you? Yes. Yeah. We always say what's important to you. Yeah. What That's really sometimes matters. a good way. And, and I think it's important to think about this holistically. So it might be a career goal, right? So if we take your career goal yeah. for this year, it's about building that business and, you know, getting yourself settled yeah. independently. It might be a family goal around, you know, we want to be an adventurous couple. And how are we going to bake that into the way we are together? It might be financial stability. It might be all these things. But I think it's really important to get very specific. I think the problem with the word value sometimes is it's a little bit nebulous and sort of woolly. What does that mean? And time and time again, I'd talk to couples and they would say, yeah, we both value X, right? We both value family. And I always spoke to couples separately. When I spoke to them separately, I would say, okay, what do you mean by that? And they would say completely opposite things. And it's like, okay, that's why you're struggling. Mm. You know, on the surface, it looks like your value is the same. And that's why it's really important to talk about these things rather than just naming them. Right? There's a big difference between, like, here's my list, let me see yours, to, you know, what does this really mean and what might that look like for us and how are we going to make that work? Yeah, we always talk to people about if you're doing your values, the definition of what you mean by that word is almost more important than the word. Exactly. Because you and I might both say, oh, we really value trust or loyalty yeah but what we mean by that could be just just so different so yeah I think the like you say the accessible question is probably like what matters to you what's really important to you and even actually as I've been over the last couple of years talking to my partner about the next four or five years one of the things that clearly matters to him is that he'd really like to do a four-day week 
Oh, and yeah. so, and actually, I find that really specific and really useful because yes. you go, oh, okay, that's helpful. Partly because he wants to be like around a bit more for our toddler. Yeah. He won't be quite a toddler by then. But also, you go, that's got some financial implications. That's okay. We've got time. Yeah. I'm not saying he wants to do it right now, but that's something that clearly he is aspiring to in yeah. terms of one of the things that he wants to do, which I think comes on to the second one a bit, which is about boundaries. So when we yeah. say boundaries, what kind of boundaries are we talking yeah, about? It's, and boundaries are really important. So they might be time boundaries, like you're yep. talking how much work is too much work. Yes. And that might be important for your husband. He really wants to work four days a week. But it's also important, like if he took a job that was 100 hours a week, that's really going to negatively impact your career. Yeah. So it's also the boundary between. It might be a location boundary, right? Yeah. Is it that we have have agreed we're staying in London and that's it or you know what if one of you get offers a job in Birmingham where does that, you know yeah. so these location boundaries it might be a boundary around your relationship so you know Mark Zuckerberg Facebook has this famous thing where he's dedicated two hours quality time a week with his wife and like that's oh you know, I'm not like, sure how I'd feel about that if someone was like oh you're now in the quality time yeah no, <laughs> which is a little weird but what matters is they're your boundaries I suppose right? yeah and the reason boundaries are really important is they restrict our choice which sounds a bit counterintuitive, right? Because I think especially in the UK, we're always taught more choice, the better. Mm -hmm. But that's not what the research shows at all. In fact, more choice equals harder to make decision equals more regret when we make decisions. Confusion. So it's much better to draw these boundaries so we know like, okay, this is the field we're playing on. And if we get an opportunity on another field, it's just not our field, right? So we're not going to go for it. And it's really containing for a couple to have those conversations about around boundaries and draw like, these are the lines we're not going to cross. Yeah. What happens if you change your mind on boundaries? And this is why the conversation needs to be ongoing, right? right? If the boundaries you discuss at 25 are the same as mm. the ones at 45, I would worry. Yeah, of course. You know, so it's like natural for them to yeah, evolve. Yeah, of course they evolve. But they're not a moving feast, yeah. right? And this is why I think it's an ongoing conversation. But when we face every transition, whether it's the birth of a child, whether it's you go independent, yeah. you know, whether it's a career transition, it's really important to revisit those and say, okay, have any of these changed at this point? Yeah, and actually, I appreciate Helen and I are not a couple, but it sometimes feels of like course, we are. Yeah, dual career couple together. We sometimes joke, but sometimes it's not even that much of a joke. I don't think. But we actually do have these conversations together about boundaries because actually, if our boundaries were really different, so let's say I was like, "Oh, I'm happy to travel the world with yeah. amazing if just go wherever it doesn't really worry me," and then Helen, who's got two small children under five, was yeah. like, "Oh, well, actually, I'm I'm very committed with my family to being." based in the UK, yeah. actually, if you've got very disconnected yeah. boundaries, that could, in a different way, kind of break up your couple in yeah. terms of how you're going to run that business. Yeah, yeah. I think I'm probably better at this with Helen than I am with my partner. Well, there you go. That's <laughs> but no, it's interesting you say that. I was talking to an entrepreneur the other day who'd read the book, and he said, I was torn between, do I do this first with my wife or with my business partner? Oh, well, there you go. And I think there's something in it, because if, you think of, <laughs> I think there is. if we think of important relationships, it's up there, right? Uh, yeah. An entrepreneurial co-founder. Well, the uh, last one was definitely in a more kind of entrepreneurial co-founder mode than relationship mode, which is fear. Yeah. And by this, you describe it, I think, as like just the, what are the things that you are most fearful of? So when you think about kind of the yes. future, and I think these fears are just very unique and quite different to all of us. So for some of us, it might be things like, well, actually, I'd be really fearful of things like financial security. Mm-hmm. Sometimes I guess it's about children's health. It can yeah. be so many different things. Did you find that actually... Everyone, when they have these conversations, they're just always really different. Or are there some common themes? No, they are very different. And this is why it's really important to discuss them. Because 
many of us actually don't know what our partners are really worried about. We think we do, but we yeah. don't. So I remember a stage three couple, I was talking to a transition three couple. He was absolutely convinced that she wanted them to move to where the grandchildren had been born. Right. And he was so, he was obsessing about it and he didn't want to talk about it because he knew she would say they should move. And when I spoke to her, it was not even on her radar. Oh, that's so interesting. And this happened time and time again. I would talk to couples and they would be convinced that something was going to happen and it wasn't even occurring to the other partner and this is why it's really important we talk about them because I think we all have these blanket assumptions yeah I know what my partner's worried about and we're yeah. we're, we're and working probably the through longer that you know someone the more you think that yes. I would say and you would be surprised if you have this conversation with your partner yeah. the things that come out and of course what happens is when we know those we're much more sensitive around them yeah. because none of us really intentionally want to activate our partner's fears you know when we understand them we can build a much stronger relationship because we can just be more sensitive around those areas so do you feel a load of pressure day to day to have like an amazing relationship now with your husband because you know all this stuff Someone I mean surely the other day you can never question. divorce yeah imagine because <laughs> you work with your husband as well yeah yeah we work together quite a lot no, I don't. I think, look, we are a couple like everyone else. You know, we have our ups and downs. We have our challenges. I think the way we're different is we probably talk about it maybe more than the yeah. average couple. Because you know but, how important um, it is. Yeah. And you sort but of have I, to like practice what you preach, I guess. Yeah. And I also think one thing, as you said when you read the book, one thing this research told me is no couple has everything sorted. No. And I think when you read these stories in the glossy magazines of, you know, X and Y who have this perfect life, I mean, it's just a mirage. Yes, yeah. And I was thinking actually relating the work you've done to our work around squiggly careers. I feel like your work is only going to become more relevant and important for people, partly because, as you say, there'll be more and more dual career couples. Yeah. But I feel like these transitions are probably only going to get messier. Absolutely. You know, in terms of people working in lots of different ways, different locations, probably like myself now, earlier in your career you might be doing multiple things yeah. whether that's not just something that's going to happen in sort of transition three where you're more likely to historically have done portfolio yeah. so I feel like almost the level of support that we're all going to need from our partners yeah. throughout our careers and is I al- probably higher and I also think it's about our companies are no longer providing that support yeah yeah so where do we go to so f- whereas in the past I mean, it wasn't just about that you were always with one company, which was very important, but it was also there were codified transitions, right? We knew where we were going. There were support networks. There were professional associations. That layer of support has just gone now. So there's much more pressure on couples themselves to figure out how to make it all work. Uh, And I'd not teed you up for this, but we always end our kind of podcast for asking for like best pieces of career advice. Okay. So from all of the research now that you've done, if you were to go, right, for everybody listening... And it can be your, you know, your personal yeah, yeah. best piece of career advice. What would you say to people? So my best piece of career advice is to not treat your partner as a footnote, but as a main protagonist in your career. So I think we so often want to separate career and partnerships. But the reality is, hopefully, our partner will outlive any mentor, any boss relationship, any peer relationship. And yet we so often ignore them as a source of advice, a sounding board, a really integral piece of our career. So um, that's really good don't advice. forget the person closest to you. Oh, that's really good. I think it's like you say, it's so easy to take those people for granted. Yeah. Because they're always there. Yeah. But I really like the point around they are the, they are your constant. 
yeah. essentially. Yeah. And yeah, all of this change could be happening around you, but they can kind of be the thing that goes with you the whole time. Absolutely. And if people, if they want to read the book, it's out now. If they want to find out more about the work you do and follow you, where can they find you? Yeah, so they can look at my website, jpetulieri.com. Uh, we will include that in our resources in case you're trying to scribble down that surname. Yes, yes, that's not an easy one to spell. <laughs> so you've got a website and that's got all the information about the work. Yeah, and all the press articles and the essays I write and the podcasts and everything. So, yeah. Lovely. So, as ever, if you go to the website, we'll do a little synopsis and all of the resources that we've talked about today will be there. If you want to follow us on Instagram, we're just at AmazingIf, which I know many of you do already. And we'll make sure that we have the podcast episode of Jennifer on there, as well as her top tips and her best pieces of career advice. For now, thank you for joining us, Jennifer. It's been a thank fascinating you. conversation. I feel like I didn't do too much selfish stuff. We'll, we'll do that when, the camera, when it's we'll turned see. off. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> so thank you for joining us. Thank you. And we'll speak to everybody again soon. Bye for now. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. And if you have a lot of mailing to do, Stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. It streamlines your processes to make your business more efficient, which makes you less busy. Mail checks, invoices, legal documents, and everything you need to keep your business running with Stamps.com. Seamlessly connect with every major marketplace and shopping cart. Schedule package pickups and see your cheapest and fastest shipping options from different carriers. With rates up to 89% off USPS and UPS rates. And with the Stamps.com mobile app, you can take care of mailing and shipping wherever you are. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Sign up with code PROGRAM for a 4-week trial, plus free postage and a free digital scale. No long-term commitments or contracts. That's stamps.com. Code program.